The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry, and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers, and wept upon them. After that... His brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The word of God for the people of God. I really liked not having the pulpit between us last week, so we're just going to try this again and see how it goes. Uh, pulpits for a preacher are kind of like a blankie. <laughs> I don't know if I need it, but it sure feels like I do. So, um, but we're going to try to go without it and just see what the Lord does. Uh, it could be a really long sermon, so we'll see what happens. Try to get you guys out of here for lunch. Uh, hey, we're working our way through the life of Joseph together, and so we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, I want to pass on a couple pieces of data that you might find interesting and uh, celebratory. First of all, I want to tell you how many people were in this building last Sunday, Easter Sunday, uh, 1,558 souls across three services. That's really fun. Really fun. Some of you guys are like, that's great. Some of you guys are like, that seems like a lot of people, and it's going to be a lot harder to get my kids in a kids' ministry around here. So good and bad things, good and bad things, everyone. Uh, I want to talk now as an odd way of getting into the story of Joseph about uh, the worst vacation I ever went on. It was actually just two months ago. Uh, the end of February, um, my daughter had spring break from school for a week. And so uh, my wife and daughter and I said, hey, you know what? Here, here's what I feel like. By the end of February, I'm just really tired of being cold. And so I just want to go someplace where the sun shines. So we decided, you know what, let's go to Arizona. We had some friends who graciously offered us uh, a timeshare spot that they had. And so there was a place for us to go. And so we're like, all right, let's go to Arizona. So we left on a Monday, came back on a Friday. Um, we decided to go to Sedona, Arizona, which is kind of up in the mountains because we wanted to hike, we wanted to mountain bike, we wanted to enjoy the outdoors. And so we thought, you know, this time of year, daytime temperatures are between 50 and 60 and sunshine, and then it gets cooler at night. It's just going to be perfect. Actually, what happened is the whole time we were in Sedona, it did not get above freezing. And not only that, but it snowed five inches while we were there. It was warmer in Omaha and nicer in Omaha than it was in Arizona while we were in Arizona. It was the worst vacation ever. And so basically what we did for, you know, two and a half days while we were snowed in to our timeshare condo is we just watched a lot of HGTV. Because I think that's what you do on vacation when this happens. And what I learned is that every show on HGTV is actually the same show. <laughs> it has different people on it, but it's the same exact show. The show goes like this. Somebody buys a property. It's terrible. They tear it all apart, remodel it, hire some contractors to redo it. It's all farmhouse with white paint and quartz cabinet or quartz countertops. You know, everything looks exactly the same. And at the end of the show, they bring the person in. They're like, here's your new space. They're like, oh, this is amazing. And it's the big reveal, right? And it's just like that for 12 hours in a row. And what I discovered is that the producers on HGTV understand 
that there's something in us as humans that likes the big reveal. We like that moment at the end of the show where it's like, oh, this is amazing. Well, this is that moment in the life of Joseph. This is the big reveal. This is the moment we've all been waiting for when Joseph finally makes himself known to his brothers. We've been reading this story. We've been wondering, is this family going to be reconciled? Can Joseph forgive these brothers? What's going to happen? Well, here's the moment where he finally says, hey, it's me. And it's a powerful moment in the story. It's a jaw-dropping moment. In fact, the brothers are speechless. The brothers don't say a word for the first 15 verses of this chapter because they just don't know what to say. And this moment is powerful in two ways. It's emotively powerful because as we've read the story to this point, there's so much dysfunction, so much heartbreak, so much sadness and confusion. And finally, in this moment, we see Joseph's going to move toward his brothers. He's going to make himself known. It looks like there's going to be reconciliation. And so this is the moment in the story where there's just deep emotive power. It's also powerful theologically because of what Joseph says as he makes himself known to his brothers. If you have a Bible, look with me at Genesis 45, starting in verse 5. Joseph says, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times Joseph reiterates, God sent me here. God is the one behind this. Joseph has come to understand God as the main character in the story of his life. And this text and this story is in the Bible to help you come to the same conclusion. To see that God is the main character in the story of your life. This chapter in Genesis lays out for us in very clear sight the doctrine of providence. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, the providence of God. So here's where the sermon is headed. I want to talk about what providence is. I want to talk about how providence works. And I want to talk about why providence matters. What providence is, how providence works, why providence matters. So let's start with just understanding this historic Christian truth. What is providence? Providence is simply the name that theologians and scholars give to this truth about God that Joseph is expressing right here in verse 5. Notice verse 5 again. He says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. Notice, you sold me, God sent me. Providence is the understanding that underneath and behind the working of human beings, God is sovereignly at work working out his purposes in the world. That's what providence is. It's the truth that underneath and behind the actions of human beings, God is at work in a deeper way to bring about his sovereign purposes. 
Now, this classic doctrine of providence, this classic truth that's given to us here in Scripture has been expressed and enshrined in many of the historic creeds and catechisms of the Christian faith. And so I want to direct you to one of those just to help us get our minds around what the Scriptures are teaching about the providence of God. So I want to look at the Belgic Confession from 1561. So 450 years ago, your Protestant forefathers and mothers expressed the doctrine of providence this way. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in the world without God's orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of and cannot be charged with the sin that occurs. For God's power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that God arranges and does his works very well and justly, even when the devils and the wicked act unjustly. That's what's going on in Joseph's story, isn't it? His brothers are acting unjustly. Their intent is to be rid of him, to be done with him. And yet, God is so good and so powerful and so wise that Underneath and behind their injustice, God is working out his glorious purposes in the world. Sometimes God, in his providence, works in spite of human intention, as we see in this story. Sometimes God works through human intention. And if you've been walking with God for any length of time at all, I'm sure you have stories in your life of how you've seen the providence of God at work. Let me tell you a couple of those stories in our life together. Back in 2005, myself and my family and about 60 other people were commissioned and sent out to plant Cormdale Church. And the church that sent us out said, hey, you have our blessing. Here's the only caveat. You can't plant within a five-mile radius of our property. It was kind of like a NIMBY approach to church planting, you know, not in my backyard. Um, and so what that meant in the providence of God, it meant that we were going to end up planting a church downtown. And so that was great because that was sort of the part of the city that we felt called by God to reach. And so the week that we were sent out by our sending church, I was driving around downtown with another person from our core team. And we came across this building down uh, in the old market. Um, had been built in 1889 and had recently undergone a historic preservation sort of renovation. And the main floor of that building had been turned into an event space. And it wasn't open yet, um, but there was a sign out in front that said 1316 Jones Street, event space coming soon, and a phone number. And so there happened to be some construction workers in there doing some final work in the space. And so we walked in, looked around, and realized, man, this is a perfect space for the kind of thing we envision, the kind of church we want to plant and where we want to be. And so I called the phone number on that sign. And I said, hey, my name's Bob, part of a church planting team that's starting a new church downtown and just drove by the building and saw this number on the sign. And so I thought I'd call and ask if you'd be willing to let us rent this space on Sundays. The person on the other end of the phone said, well, this is an amazing phone call. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I'm not Christian, this is a brand new business that I'm starting, 
And one of the things I've been praying is that God would allow me to use this business somehow to advance his kingdom. So not only am I willing to rent it to you on Sundays, this call is an answer to prayer and I'd love to rent it for about half of what we would charge otherwise. What is that? Well, that's the providence of God at work, right? The same week, I got another call from a businessman in the city who had a connection to our core team. He had some family members who were part of our church. And this, this guy had just become a Christian like six months before, later on in life. He was in his 40s. He had come to faith in Jesus and he was trying to sort of rethink his life and understand what do I do with my resources, my assets, my life? How do I become generous and start investing more in what God's doing in the city? And so he knew what we were doing and he called me up and said, hey, I heard you guys found a place to meet. And I said, yeah, we did it. I think it's gonna be great. Told him a little bit about it. He said, well, listen, I've been praying and one of the things I think the Lord's calling me to do is I wanna help invest in what you guys are doing and so I'd like to just pay your rent for the first year. So would you just connect me with your landlord and I'll just pay the rent for your space for the first 12 months of the church's existence. So in one week, we got a space to meet and it ended up being free for 12 months. What is that? That's, that's just the providence of God at work. Those are the kinds of stories God writes. And sometimes we can see them and recognize what God is doing. And sometimes like Joseph, we don't really see them until much later when it becomes clear. But that's what providence is. It's God's work behind and underneath human action to work out his sovereign purposes in the world for the sake of his people. So that's what providence is. Let's think a little bit then about how providence works because there is some nuance here for us to understand. And so this is the part where I preach another three-point sermon inside the original three-point sermon, okay? So I'm gonna give you three ways that providence works. I think it's important that we think about this. First, providence works concurrently. Providence works concurrently. Now I know that's kind of an SAT word. And so for those of you who went to Millard South, I wanna explain it a little bit. Man, the 9 a.m. liked that joke a lot more than you got. A lot of Millard South people in here, apparently. If you drive about 10 miles south of here on Highway 75, you'll come to that spot right north of Plattsmouth where the Platte River flows into the Missouri River. And what happens at that point geographically is that these two currents, these two rivers, these two streams join together and become one. That's concurrence. When we say that God's providence works concurrently, what we mean is exactly what Joseph means. That God, in working out his providence, doesn't work against human will. He actually works alongside and underneath and behind and through human will in a way that we continue to experience ourselves as free. And yet, in all of that, God is at work. He's working his purposes out, sometimes in spite of what people are doing. I mean, just think of Joseph's story. Think of the fact that his brothers have no intention of him being elevated to power in Egypt. They have no intention of him providing food in a famine. None of that was in their minds, but that's what God's doing. Listen to what John Calvin says about this particular text. Calvin writes, Joseph was sold by his brothers because they wished to ruin and annihilate him. Yet the same work is ascribed to God, but for a very different end. Namely, 
that in a time of famine, the family of Jacob might have an unexpected supply of food. Men are not exempt from guilt, yet God may, beyond expectation, bring what they wickedly attempt to a good and happy result. What Calvin is reminding you of is the human actors in this story, they're full of evil and wickedness, and yet God, mysteriously and sovereignly, is working behind all of that to accomplish something they could not have envisioned and did not intend. Providence works concurrently. Now, the second way that providence works is providence works mysteriously. As soon as we talk about concurrence, then we've got to embrace mystery, right? Because the reality is, though we can describe what providence is, we can't explain all the nuances of how it works. How is it that God, underneath the actions and intentions of human beings, is working out his own purposes in the world? How does all that work? Well, the answer is, mysteriously. Like, there's mystery here, and if you're not okay with some mystery, then you're going to have a hard time being a Christian. Can we just be honest about that? Like, um... There's also the virgin birth. There's also the Trinity. There's also the hypostatic union of two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. I can explain zero of these things to you. (laughs) All of them are shrouded in a certain amount of mystery. We believe them because the word proclaims them, but not because we can explain them. And if that's a problem for you, if you wonder like, what? That just seems kind of odd. I would just encourage you to come up after the service and explain to me Einstein's theory of relativity or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. The fact is, if you've studied anything long enough, in every area of human knowledge, we begin to bump up against places where we can describe things that are true but have no idea how to explain them. That's just reality about human knowledge and understanding. And so it should not surprise you at all that when we're talking about God and his work in the world, there's moments where we touch up against mystery and just say, this is true. I'm not exactly sure how God works it all out. There's mystery here. I already introduced you to the Belgic Confession. I want to read you the next paragraph in that confession about providence. And I want you to catch how our Protestant forefathers and mothers captured the importance of mystery Here, listen. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what God does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what God shows us in the word without going beyond those limits. Or as Moses would say it in the book of Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What our job is as Christians is to believe and proclaim what God reveals in his word and to understand that there are things that because we are finite and limited that we cannot understand and that God has not revealed. And that's okay because God is God and we're not. Providence works concurrently. Providence works mysteriously. And finally, providence works retrospectively. In other words, you can only really see it in the rearview mirror. It's probably more uh, accurate here for me to say, 
we understand providence retrospectively. God knows exactly what he's doing. God's not working retrospectively. God's working proactively. But we, in our understanding, only see in hindsight much of what God is up to, if we see it at all. Because remember, part of the mystery is God's doing a bunch of things in your life you don't even know. You're not even aware of them. But God's providentially working. And sometimes, in retrospect, you, you begin to see, oh, I think I see what God was doing there. I mean, keep in mind, Joseph's 22 years deep into his story. And only now does it seem that he begins to understand the story that God is writing. Notice that he, in this chapter, is the interpreter of providence for his brothers. He's saying, guys, don't even worry about it. You sold me here, but let me tell you the bigger story that God's writing. But look with me at verse 6 again. Joseph says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. It seems from the text that it's only in light of the famine and of Joseph's brothers coming to Egypt to buy grain that he's finally realized some of what God seems to be doing here. Why is Joseph in Egypt? Why did he spend a season of time in prison? Why has he been promoted to a place of authority? Why is he now the one in charge of distributing food during the famine? Joseph now is realizing, oh, well, this is why God brought me here. But he didn't know that when he showed up in Egypt. It's only now, as he's experiencing what God is providing through him in the midst of a famine, that he begins to be able to read providence retroactively and retrospectively in the story. And listen to me, the same is true for you. Hear me, there are going to be things in your life that just don't make sense. There are going to be moments where you just can't piece together what is God doing? Why is this event or this circumstance happening? What could the meaning possibly be in this? That's true for every human being. And the text of Genesis 45 is here to remind you. God is up to something, even if you don't understand what it is. And there will come a time in the future when you will be able to look back and realize, oh, I see what God was doing. Maybe that time will come in your life here, and maybe it will only come in the new heavens and the new earth. But either way, just keep in mind that rarely can you read providence in real time. It's not like you're like, oh, here's what God's doing. I know exactly what he's up to. If you're that person, let me know, because I'd really like to hang out with you more. Most of the time, we only see what God is doing as we look back and as we read our lives through the lens of what he has revealed. Okay, so we've looked at what providence is. We've looked at how providence works. Let's think finally about why providence matters. Like, why is this text in the Bible? What does God want to reveal to us? Why does it matter that we understand this truth of how he works? In order to help us think about this, I want to, I want to borrow a little riff from R.C. Sproul, that great preacher of the Bible who's now deceased. 
from a sermon he preached on Providence decades ago. And he was actually working out this same story in the Bible, the story of Joseph. He said, hey, I want to, pl- want to play a little game with you. He said to his audience, I want to play the game of what if. So let's just think about this for a minute. What if Jacob had never given Joseph that special coat? What if Joseph had never had those dreams about the sun and moon and 11 stars bowing down to him? Or if he had the dreams, he didn't share them with his brothers. If there was no coat, and if there were no dreams, then there would be no jealousy. And if there was no jealousy, then there would be no conspiracy among the brothers. And if there was no conspiracy, then Joseph would not have been sold to the Midianite traders. And if Joseph hadn't been sold to the Midianite traders, Joseph would never have ended up in Egypt in the first place. And if Joseph had never gone to Egypt, he wouldn't have been purchased by Potiphar. And if he hadn't been purchased by Potiphar, he wouldn't have been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And if he hadn't been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, then he wouldn't have ended up in prison. And if he hadn't ended up in prison, he would have never met the chief cupbearer. And if he hadn't met the chief cupbearer, then he wouldn't have been summoned by Pharaoh when Pharaoh had a dream that he couldn't interpret. And if he hadn't been summoned by Pharaoh and interpreted his dream, he never would have been promoted to a place of authority in the kingdom of Egypt. And if Joseph hadn't been promoted to a place of authority in the kingdom of Egypt, he wouldn't have been able to provide for his family and invite them to come to Egypt during the famine and dwell there. And if Joseph's family hadn't come to Egypt during the famine, then there would have been no community of Hebrews dwelling in Egypt and multiplying after the famine until the day when a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph or what God had done for Israel. And if there had been no community of Hebrews in Egypt underneath that later Pharaoh who began to oppress them, then there would have been no cry to God for deliverance. And if there had been no cry to God for deliverance, there would have been no Moses. If there was no Moses, there would have been no Exodus. And if there was no Exodus, there would have been no Mount Sinai. And if there was no Mount Sinai, there would have been no law. And if there was no law, there would have been no prophets. And if there were no prophets, there would have been no Jesus. And if there was no Jesus, there would have been no cross. And if there was no cross, there would have been no resurrection. And if there was no Jesus and no cross and no resurrection, then there would be no salvation and nothing for you to be here today celebrating. It's because of one lousy coat that we're all here today celebrating the providence of God. That's why providence matters. Because providence is your guarantee and mine that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. That no amount of human sin, wickedness, foolishness, or evil is going to derail the purposes of God. That's why providence matters, because it means you and I can rest securely in the promises of God, despite all the evidence in our lives and in the world that would make us doubt and question. When you see the providence of God, it should make you trust the promises of God. 
That's what's happening in this story. When you see the providence of God, it should make you trust the promises of God. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the chapter for Jacob. Now, we've been looking mostly at the beginning of the chapter, so let's look now at the end, and let's pick it up where the brothers come to Jacob to deliver this news that Joseph has given them to deliver. It's in, starting in verse 25 of chapter 45. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine being Jacob and getting this news? Like this is a shocking, disorienting moment, isn't it? This son that you've assumed was dead for two decades, now suddenly you're being told not only is he alive, but he's ruling over the entire kingdom of Egypt. He wants us to come down and dwell there. He's going to provide for us during the famine. This is such shocking news. And notice what it says. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Jacob hears them say, Joseph is alive and he's ruler of all the land of Egypt. It's not that he didn't hear the words, but his heart is numb. He doesn't, he can't believe what he's hearing. And I wonder if you can relate. I wonder if you can relate to having a heart that's numb to the promises of God, to the good news of what God's doing in the world. I wonder if you've heard news like this not just about Joseph, but about Jesus. Hey, Jesus is alive and he's ruling over all the kingdoms of the earth. If you've heard that news, but, but you just, your heart's numb. It doesn't move you. It doesn't accomplish anything in you. <laughs> For he did not believe them. Look what happens next, verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, what words? The words we've already read. The words where Joseph is reminding them of the providence of God. Those words. When they told Jacob, hey, hey, dad, Joseph is still alive. By the way, we've been lying to you for 20 years. We actually told you who's dead, but it's, we actually sold him to some Midian. I mean, you can imagine how this story is going to go, right? There's a lot to tell here. You can, it's going to take Jacob a while to go, oh, hold on, guys. What? Back up a little bit, right? But as they say to him, hey, we saw him in Egypt. And what he said to us is, you sold me here, but God sent me. That's the truth that it says. Look, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What was it that moved Jacob's heart from numbness and unbelief to faith and action? It was Joseph, or sorry, Jacob, hearing and seeing the truth of God's providence. It was when they told him 
all the words of Joseph, which he had said. When they reminded Jacob who the real author of this story is and what it appears God is really doing underneath all of this dysfunction. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but here's what I imagine is probably happening in Jacob. As he hears his sons tell him, not only is Joseph alive, but we sold him into slavery, and yet when we stood there before him, he reminded us that God had sent him. In fact, Joseph told us, Dad, that God sent him there to preserve a remnant of our family during this famine. That God has uniquely positioned him to deliver us, to redeem us, to ensure our life and thriving and prosperity. I imagine what's happening for Jacob as he reckons with that news is that he is remembering back to the promise that God made to his grandfather, Abraham. When God said in Genesis 12, go from your land and from your country to the land I will show you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And I imagine what's happening for Jacob, who's faced the death of his beloved wife, the supposed loss of one of his sons, the dysfunction of his own favoritism and its wreckage in his family, the sibling rivalry and infighting that's marked his sons for decades. All of that in this moment is being reinterpreted for Jacob in light of the providence of God. He too is learning to see in his own story the providence of God. And I imagine for Jacob, the joy that breaks in in this moment is despite all of this chaos, despite all the heartache and the pain and the confusion of the life I've lived, despite all of that, God is fulfilling his promises. God is doing what he said he was going to do in a way I couldn't have imagined it happening in a way none of us could have foreseen. And in light of that, Jacob's spirit revives. Jacob sees what God is doing to fulfill his promises, and he says, I will go. Let's go see Joseph. Let's take action on the invitation that's been issued, because I see that God is fulfilling his promises. The providence of God should move you to trust in the promises of God. And listen to me, friend, can't you see that the same providence that's active in Genesis 45 is active in your life? It's the same God at work in the same world among the same kinds of people. Sinners and sufferers who are finite and living in a fallen world. That's you and me, just like it was them. Listen, I don't know what got you in this room this morning, but think about this. Why are you here? Why are you hearing this sermon right now? It's not because of fate or chance, it's not random. You're hearing this word from God on this day of your life 
Because of the providence of an almighty God. Because God is the one writing this story. And of all the hundreds of thousands of people in Omaha, Nebraska, you're here right now. Or if you're watching or listening to this later, of all the billions of things you could find out there in the world, this is the message you're listening to. Why? Because of the providence of an almighty God. Because the same God who was inviting Jacob to trust his promises is inviting you to trust his promises. And the same God who was working out his purposes in Joseph's life is working out his purposes in your life. And the same unknowns and confusions and uncertainties that were present for Joseph and his brothers are present in your life, and yet the same God is ruling over all of it. You're hearing this word this morning because God wants you to respond in faith and obedience the same way Jacob did. And listen, there's always two ways to respond to the proclamation of good news and to the providence of a sovereign God. You can always respond in numbness and disbelief or in faith and obedience. And I want you to notice Jacob responds with both in the space of a few minutes, right? This is never one or the other. God wants to move you from a place of numbness and unbelief to a place of faith and trust. And that happens as you begin to read your life in light of God's providence. To see that God is fulfilling his promises to his people. And that's why you're here this morning. You're here because God wants you to get caught up in this. Because God wants to fulfill these same promises right now in the world we actually live in through you and me. As we're united in faith to Jesus Christ. And sent out in the world to live for his glory as his people among the neighborhoods and the city that we dwell in. This same God is working out his providential purposes with us today, just like he's doing with Joseph, just like he's doing with Jacob. And so the invitation to you, friend, is believe, trust, hope, grab hold of the promises that God has made. And especially the promise he has made in the death and resurrection of his beloved son. Remember, in this moment, the call is do what Joseph says. Come to where Joseph is. Joseph's in Egypt. He's sending word to his father saying, God sent me here and I'm going to provide for you. Come to me. And likewise, friends, Jesus Christ is saying to you this morning, God has sent me to prepare a way for you. Come to me. Come trust in the promises God has made in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we ought to respond in this moment right now to God's providential work in our lives. The providence of God should help you hope in and trust in the promises of God. So friends, let's bow our heads before the God who makes these good promises. And let's trust in him together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the beauty and the mystery of your providence. Every one of us is sitting here this morning in the middle of a story, many parts of which we can't make sense of. And yet as we read this text, and as we see Joseph reading his life in light of your providence, we know the same is true in our lives, whether we can see it as clearly as Joseph did or not. 
Thank you that none of us is here this morning by accident. None of us is hearing this word randomly. You are providentially at work in our lives. And so I pray this morning that you would help us respond in faith, in trust, in hope. Help us grab hold of the good news that you have delivered to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us latch onto your promises by faith. Help us, like Jacob, arise and go and be united with the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Help us grab hold of your promises in confidence and live faithfully as your people in the world. Meet us in the places where we feel weak, where we feel the numbness of our hearts. Come and awaken us and refresh us with your grace and your goodness this morning. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.